Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine. I'm Sasha Coca. Today, we're revisiting one of our favorite episodes from our series, Mixed, Stories of Mixed Race Californians. The most common question that I got growing up was, what are you? I just never understood why, why can't you include all of me? You know, where do I fit in? Who do I identify with? I wonder sometimes if I looked a little more like my mom or a little more like my dad, how different my life would be. If I just check one box, I feel like it doesn't fully represent who I am. I would describe growing up as mixed race as kind of confusing and complex. I need all my mixed people to talk about it, express yourself, your perspective. I'm mixed and I'm proud of it. Being myself and having an awesome family. I have always been a mixed person. I wouldn't know how to think of myself otherwise, and I'm not planning on changing. (laughs) KQED's Marisa Lagos and I have been talking to mixed race folks from across the state, ranging in age from 18 to 73. And today we're getting a different perspective from kids and two parents, a black dad and a white mom, who are raising three mixed kids and having very intentional conversations about race and not just at home. We're so happy to be talking to Melissa and W. Kamau Bell about their documentary, 1000% Me, Growing Up Mixed. I would say I'm half Pakistani and I'm half African-American. I would say I'm Asian and American, so I'm mixed race. I am 100% Filipino, 100% African-American, and 1,000% a person. I love that. A thousand percent a person. Absolutely. A thousand percent human. That's where the title came from. (laughs) It's like the kid didn't know, but he gave us the title. Before we get to the movie and to your kids, we want to know about you two. I know when my parents got together, you know, everybody was all fine about the interracial relationship, but they were very concerned about the kids. How are the Mm -hmm. kids going to turn out? What's going to happen? How are they going to figure out their identities? Which feels like code. Right? It's code. It it was a complicated journey for us in the first couple of years with my family, in particular with my late grandfather, who uh, is an Italian-American, and he, you know— claimed and felt in his heart that he was open to all people. And then when we started dating seriously, found out that the little caveat for him was that those people, though, shouldn't be dating and shouldn't be in relationship with one another. So it uh, was a a sort of shockwave through the family that that very blatant racism had been buried, you know, in this kind of language about 
openness. Um, and then there was this very clear dividing line for him that that our relationship was not acceptable. And so we really had fairly quickly in our relationship had to figure out how to navigate the obligation that I still felt to my family. I was 23. Then figuring out how do I incorporate this person who means so much to me into that and and how can I honor what his experience is and make sure that he is supported and respected without abandoning my family or creating some sort of big scene. Uh, it was a lot and it was a long Long process. Yeah. How soon did you talk about having kids, and did you talk about what it would be like to raise mixed kids? Yeah, I mean, we talked about it a lot. I mean, I feel like when I think about the early days of our relationship, a lot of it was like, Melissa was giving me like a, like, let me catch you up on the history of feminism. <laughs> and I was like, okay, let me catch you up on the history of race and racism in America. Like, even though we both maybe know a little bit about that, but let me give it to you from my perspective. So, sure, I had a lot of book learning, but yeah, yeah, li- yeah. living with you was a whole different experience. Yeah, so it was like there was a lot of sharing of information we did from very early in our relationship. That Then you start talking about kids, and there's like, well, what are they going to look like? And we don't know. And I mean, I, I feel like I was, because if you're black in America, there's already a certain level of mixture Especially yeah, if, you're, if, right. you, if you've had family that goes back to the days of enslavement, you know. So uh, for me, I was more aware of the fact that, like, we have no idea what these kids are going to look like. <laughs> DNA is a weird thing that we can't that we can't sort of look at how how it's worked out for other people and think it's going to work that way for us. Also, if we have multiple kids, that doesn't mean they're all the second kid's not going to look like the first kid. That's not right. Look yeah. like the third yeah. kid. Genetics. Yeah, I was sort of aware <laughs> that like that it was a you know. And then there's a part of me that always thought before I remember this, so, like. There is a sense of like, will the kids look like me? You know, like that weird sort of like, will I be able to see myself in my kids? You know? Well, and we were, what, six, seven years into our relationship before we decided to get married. We'd done so much of this groundwork with my family and talked through what it is that we need and what is it for us to be in relationship. And we'd gotten to a point with my family where things were okay, like they were fine, and Kamau had been they were accepted. Fine. Yeah, Kamau had been accepted. It's fine. It's like the the meme with the fire. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Like it. It was all copacetic, I guess. And then when we had our oldest, when we had Sammy, and Sammy was just a tiny baby, I think. My grandfather, who had been the source of a lot of the tension, uh, really shifted. And so there was something about the presence of this child and a sort of recognition of the continuation of his family line through this child. And, you know, these weren't conversations that we ever got to have with him directly, but I would say certainly Mm -hmm. his affect towards Kamau, his understanding Mm -hmm. of our relationship and sort of respect for us as uh, parents and, uh, you know, a family unit really changed. Yeah, I mean, like by some the, healing. By the like, end, we were yeah. buddies. Yeah, <laughs> like, I mean, it's funny to say that. Yeah. That is not where I thought this was going to no, go. No, no, no. I mean, <laughs> by the end, he would refer to me as one of his grandsons. Well, wow. he, he used to do that with his with his other sons in laws, but not with me. And then by the end, I was he's like, I always tell people my grandson's all over the place. He's traveling everywhere, and like, and this is a Fox News watcher. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like, he is only turning to CNN when I'm on. You know, so <laughs> like, I saw a tremendous change in this man. I think seeing a couple things. One, I think seeing 
first of all, Sammy's adorable, and she's the, one of the best she children ever amazing. born. So I think yeah. she's she was very sort of like this perfect child that came in. And then I think also seeing that I was a father and a husband who was working hard for his family, you know? Yeah. All right. Well, let's get to the movie because one thing that struck us through the conversations we've been having with mostly adults is how many parents just do not talk to their kids about race. They don't have those hard conversations. And this film opens with you doing just that. My name is Juna and I'm seven. All right. And what are you made up of? Like, what are your races? What are you made up of? Black and white. And what are you? Are you black? Are you white? Are you both? Are you more both. one? Are you more one than the other? Both. So have you ever had anything happen to you at school where somebody was like thought you were something different than yep. you were? Oh, what happened? We were under the tower, and then she just came running towards us and said, and told me I was white. And how'd that make you feel? Sad. Why did make you feel sad? Because I'm not just white and black. <laughs> you okay, Melissa? You yep. okay with it? Yep. I remember it well. <laughs> that's Juno. That's our kid. That's yeah. Our kid. yeah. What's it like to have those kind of conversations with a seven-year-old? Uh, I mean, great. <laughs> I mean, I think that, like, I was really proud of Juno in that moment that she stood up for herself and didn't just let a kid call her white. She didn't have to. She's not really a person who likes conflict, right? <laughs> so she's not. And the fact that she sort of stood up for herself, and it was even more involved. I think she got a teacher involved. Like, she really, like, stood up for advocated around her identity, which to me was just like, I'm a good dad. <laughs> <laughs> you got to take those wins. You yeah, really yeah, you got to take you really those do. wins. Like, well, it really, yeah. she's not learning to talk about race on the playground. She, she learned to talk yeah. about race at home. Right. And right. She knew the answer exactly. already. Exactly. And yeah, she knows sure. who she is in her fullness and her wholeness. And she didn't need somebody else to tell her yeah. or to figure it out out in the world because you guys gave her those tools. And also, Juno is like she's what based on what she says is like she is somebody who can appear white to some people, you know, called passing. And I knew that as soon as Juno was like her color came in or didn't come in, <laughs> like I was mm-hmm. like, not well. I was like, "Yeah, only because it was like now she's going to have to fight for this identity mm-hmm. that is just a part of her, you know." And that means we have to sort of like let her know early on that this is a part of your identity, whether somebody can see it on your skin or not. Yeah. How do you all think about like making sure that your kids celebrate? all and embrace like all of their heritages because I think often in families there might be one side that's just more present that you know a grandparent's there cooking the food or teaching the customs and like it is different to sort of expose kids to these different you know sometimes things that can be in conflict in our society. Uh, Again you know I grew up with this sort of strong Italian-American family background and I would say certainly it's uh, present for the kids, like they are aware that that is sort of the part of white culture that is theirs in terms Crab of like meals and Eve. yeah, you know we have our raviolis and you know there's things that they know as our kind of family traditions that are based in in those white traditions, and also like Kamau wakes the kids up. Most mornings no, for, I mean, not, 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 for a couple of years. For a couple of years. It hasn't happened. He, he would wake them up with Young, Gifted, and Black 
Are you singing it yeah. to them? <laughs> no, no, no. Sometimes. I would, I would say, no, yeah, uh, you let, would, you I would, let I would, Nina do the work. I would, I would, I would, I'd, I'd let the professional do the work. No, I would. No, it was. It was actually really started during the early days of the pandemic as a way to like sort of like, all right, we got to get up. I know there's no reason to, but we got to get up. I mean, I think a lot of it is being really proactive about it like you know like it's not like not letting stuff escape because you're not thinking about it so for me I think there's been things where I'm like I sort of I, I, you know early on with them like what are the things that I really want to make sure that they feel as close to in black culture that I feel close to and I just want to make sure that that stuff is out there and some of that stuff is like personal to me and some of that stuff is more generic to black culture as a whole like you're gonna learn to sing the Stevie Wonder version of the Happy Birthday song. <laughs> That's right. Because so that so that when you go to black birthday parties, you'll notice sing that version, and it won't and it won't you won't be the mixed race kid being like, I don't know that song. So like you're gonna, we're gonna sing it after, and so now we sing it after every at every birthday. We sing that song, then we sing the Stevie Wonder version, as happens in black households across the country. And I love when they sing it for like their cousins' birthdays or things. You know, they yeah. have it so much in them that it's part of that celebration. They sing it for all the birthdays. Oh, they're bringing they it to the rest of the yeah. family. Yeah. The of That's great. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, there's a moment in the film that really struck me talking about white moms and black dads um, with Greg, who mm. is a, a mixed race person. He's also an uncle to one of the kids in the film. I want to just play that clip. Like one of the responses to racism is to run away and to look away from it. And, and I think that that's what happened in, a lot in the family. Um, and I think that that was my first experience of whiteness with my mom and just like to have somebody who was unwilling to have a conversation with me about race when you decided to have, you know, black children and, you know, mixed heritage children um, taught me a lot about what whiteness was and wasn't willing to do. So just to be clear, your mom, who's white, wasn't, didn't have access to the black conversation. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, she just didn't, you know, and I, you know, sorry, mom, but like, yeah, it's it's what it was, and and it really informed. I think, and because of that, it also shaped my experience of wanting to be able to articulate and explain everything I possibly could in the clearest type of way to have it land with somebody who was already hella resistant to it or, yeah. or just like completely oblivious to it. I have to create language that lands in such a way anybody can hear it, and like. <laughs> that was a trauma response. <laughs> so we're all nodding, but I'm wondering, Melissa, specifically, what was your reaction to that clip as a white mom? The thing that I was just thinking in this moment, actually, is the moment when I felt the most, like for the first time concretely, the separation of Sammy's experience from mine as a white person. It was when there were folks coming to Berkeley from the alt-right and they were protesting uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. And we lived in downtown Berkeley at the time, so these protests were happening, like, going down the street that we could see out our bedroom window. Yeah, the mayor of Berkeley said, stay out of this area. And you're like, you mean where our house We is? lived there, <laughs> yeah. And the helicopters were zooming overhead all the time, and we felt compelled to action, and we wanted the kids to feel empowered and to understand what was going on. So we went to a teach-in specifically designed for children, and they teach the kids about activism, and they teach the kids what white supremacy is. But I think Sammy was maybe five or six at the time and heard, as she's sitting in my lap, that the people who are coming here to our town are coming because they think white people are better than other people. And they're coming here, and they're in our streets, and we need to tell them that what they believe is not right, and that these are our streets, you know. And I remember sitting with this kid and these tears in my eyes, and she's turning back to look at me like, 
wait, hold up. Like, <laughs> like you, white mom, can we check in about this for a second? Like, you're, but you're white, but I'm not just white. And I really saw her come into a new understanding of the separation that would always exist between the two of us. And it broke my heart that I could follow her or protect her or be there with her or understand her or mentor her and always only to a certain extent, that there would always be things about her lived experience that I as a white person would never understand. And um, we have to, you know, build our love around those differences. You also have to be able to step in and do the work, right? I mean, you have to be willing. What Greg's talking about is a mom who just didn't want to go there. Yeah. She didn't want to talk about it. Or didn't, I mean, you know, let's, didn't, maybe didn't even have the resources around her to know that there was some place to go. That's right. I, yeah. You know, I don't, you know. Right. No uh, roadmap. Yeah. The, and so I think that like, again, this is about how we've lived. Like that didn't, ha- that didn't happen with Melissa and Sammy at a Safeway. It happened at an abundant beginnings. Teaching. Yeah. In the basement of a, right, maybe a synagogue teaching. or something. Yeah. 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 So a, it's like, it was like Melissa Berkeley. and us trying to pursue these things for our children and even maybe knowing that we were getting them like maybe it was too deep for them maybe it was too deep for us I remember when they were teaching them how to say hey hey ho ho white supremacy's got to white supremacy's got to go our kids were like wait what now <laughs> and then later they sang it in the bathtub oh my God. <laughs> so like, but you I mean obviously in this framing the white supremacy sort of aspect looms large but you have a different experience than your kids as well mm-hmm. right and yeah. like I just wonder What's the, what has that been like with you? Did you have a moment like Melissa's where that really struck you? Around police brutality, around the relationship to the police, black people's relationship to the police, having to very clearly spell out that like police are supposed to be our friends. They are often not the friends of black people. So we just need to know that whenever we interact with police. So knowing that like Juno, again, May look, the police may think she's a white girl, you know, so she may not have the experience, but I don't want you to walk around this world, even if you have the privilege to get away with it, thinking that not knowing what the truth is. So, yeah, I think whenever we talked about George Floyd, we talked about any of the murders at the hands of police, that that's a place in which I've really, really intentionally tried to connect with the kids. And to say that that experience is not one you may not have this experience, but it is an experience our people have. Mm-hmm. And that you have as a black man in America, Absolutely. which they yeah. may not as yeah. mixed girls. Right. I want to play another. There are just so many amazing kids I, I in like, this film. Like, it's really hard to choose from a one-hour film. <laughs> but, um, but I was touched by so many of these kids. I want to play a soundbite from Kaylin. Through social media, there's like a lot of, well, if you're not this black, you can't like do this or do that. or And like sometimes I just feel almost excluded from my own race and sometimes I don't know whether I should tread lightly or if I should or if I should try to fit in. I mean this is something we've explored a lot this series this question of being enough in you know and in different places and times in your life Um, and it's totally different depending on what racial mix you are. Uh, is that something you guys have heard from your kids? I think the thing that I really noticed from working on the film is that the kids who are like, like Sammy was 10 when she did it. At 10, they haven't started to, doesn't seem like most of the kids had started to experience the trauma that kids start to experience once they hit like teenage years. So like Kaylin is just a few years older than Sammy and you can tell that that 
brief time difference means that you start to feel like the, the judgment from the outside the way teenagers feel it no matter what their race is. And I think that like if anything the film sort of encourages me to try to make sure that like you know, teenage years are hard. <laughs> right, no matter what. Yeah, let's put them in bubble wrap. We're just going to try to make their teenage years perfect. That's <laughs> yeah, <what we're> <laughs> no problem, no problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I got it. But Protect to, them to the world, no social media, yeah, yeah, no yeah. movies, nothing. Yeah, we won't put them in a film and put them on HBO. <laughs> yeah. Um, but really try to, like, one, build community so you have a community of people you can talk to, which is what this film is about, teaching people to how to maybe how to build community. And two, how to sort of really dig into your own identity in a way that you can feel solid when you get pushed from the outside. And I think one of the issues with the mixed identity is that outsiders don't feel like it's a solid identity often. Like They're I, the gatekeepers. I, yeah. They tell us oh, whether yeah. or not we're enough. Yeah, so it's like I've been on Instagram looking at influencers. There's a lot of mixed race people on Instagram. And the comments, under anytime they call themselves mixed, is like, pick a side, pick a side, pick a side. And you're like, pick a side? How? How do you pick a side? Like, yeah. I'm a sum of my parts, not those individual parts. Yeah, that's so I think that that's why I really love the fact that when the kids in the film are like, that I'm both, you know? Yeah, a thousand percent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, on the other hand, even in families where clearly this conversation is happening a lot, you bring up in the film how race can come in in these tiny moments, right? And there's a clip from two parents, Bryant, a black dad, and Jadon, a Chinese-American mom, who are raising their daughter, Mila. We would argue a lot around parenting, right? And because it's, we have all of these embedded cultural assumptions about what is good for our kids. So for example, it's like 7.30 in the morning, we're like arguing about whether Mila sh- should go out of the house with mismatching socks, you know, cause I've thrown everything, you know, I'm like, get out the door. He's like, you're not gonna let her out of the house with mismatching socks. So anyways, a big argument ensues. But at a certain point, there's like enough unpacking that at some point, Bryant says, she's a black girl. Like, you don't need to send her out in mismatching socks. Like, let's not give anybody any reason to like think she's not put together. Because for me, I'm like, I grew up in Berkeley. It's okay even if you wear two different shoes. You know, and so it could be like 7.30 in the morning and some socks, but like race is still there and your your desire to like give your kids the best chance to like be accepted and seen and like, you know, respected out in the world. I mean, it's interesting because later Bryant also says this is based on my own trauma growing up and I've actually tried to not do this as much. But it does, you know, get to this point that like what we all want is our kids to be safe and happy and, you know, like live full lives. And I think with a lot of this, there's just a lot of fear about how the world's going to, you know, see them and treat them. Yeah, I understand where Brian is coming from. For me, it's deodorant. Like, put on, I don't want anybody saying, <laughs> like, you know, like, that that black girl is stinky. You know what I mean? So, and it, because I think as black people in, in this country, and it could be true of people from other races, but certainly black people, you don't want to give white supremacy an obvious target, you know? And so you're thinking about all the things you can do, all the things you can sort of try, because you're, you're going to get targeted anyway, but you do not want to give white supremacy an easy target. And so I understood that it came from a place of love, even if that love comes from a place of trauma. For myself, I have tried to educate myself about doing the girl's hair, like that that's a big thing for me as the white mom. And I've said on more than one occasion, 
you know, people will comment like, oh, you, you braid so well. How did you learn to do braids like this? And it was like, well, I went and did a lot of research because I don't want to be, I can't be that white mom who doesn't know how to make their daughters feel beautiful through these kinds of braids and hairstyles, who isn't able to sort of help them feel like their very best selves through whatever hairstyles they want to have. Will you end this film with a message from Mila, the daughter of that couple that we heard about with the socks? And it is really powerful. A lot of people think that kids can't handle discussions about race and racism. What do you think about that idea that kids aren't prepared to handle these discussions? Uh, I don't think that's true at all, really. And race is so important to our identities and who we are. And it's really, um, it really affects us on how we move through the world and how we're treated in society. So I think that kids can totally talk about that and they can have an understanding of race and racism. And to the people who say, well, teaching people, um, kids about race will just make them more divided and we should just let them be kids, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that it's better for them to learn about race and learn kind of what race means and how race affects you when you're younger um, rather than later. What do your parents think about that? Yeah, I was watching his face during that, and I was like, he's just thinking, that's my girl. And yeah. then he said yeah. it. <laughs> that's why I asked, because I'm sitting girl. there watching, like, I could tell they both were like, oh, my God, this is so great. <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, though, we're at this very divisive time. A lot of people don't want to have these conversations, are openly rejecting the idea that we should even, you know, be having them. So... What do you hope folks take away? I mean, do you hope that this is an accessible film for people that might still have a lot of discomfort around these conversations? So it was always intended to be something that a whole family could sit down and maybe the little kids are going to pick up with all of it. But it is going to be a thing that you can all have a discussion afterwards. And so for me, it's about the discussions that come out of it. So I think it I really hope that it sort of. First of all, I think it is a, it can provide a service for mixed folks who feel like they don't know where to go to have these conversations. And then I think it's also bigger than that, just a service for for folks who are afraid of these conversations, which is most of this country. What about you, Melissa? What do you hope folks take away? A friend of mine, she's a teacher in Florida, and she came to see the film and she sent us a message afterwards just saying, like, what a gift to give to the folks who I work with who live in this place where we're being told that these conversations are dangerous and these conversations are causing problems, uh, for them to see these young people who are being taught in a different way and to understand how powerful that can be. And I think I was so excited for our community to see what we'd made, you know, that I had forgotten to think about the people who really might have opposing views to what we're presenting in the film and how it could potentially be that sort of spark of change for folks to to feel different or to consider different perspectives um, through these these kids. It just shows these kids effortlessly talk about race and racism and have no ill effect from it. Yeah, look at that. <laughs> 
That is W. Kamau Bell and Melissa Hudson-Bell talking about raising mixed-race kids. You can watch their documentary, 1000% Me, Growing Up Mixed, streaming on Max. Thank you both so much for coming in to talk to us. It's been such a fun conversation. Thanks Thanks for having having us. us. That's an episode from my series with Marisa Lagos called Mixed, Stories of Mixed Race Californians. You can check out all our interviews and some stories from you, our listeners, about your own mixed race experience at kqed.org slash mixed race. And by the way, Melissa and Kamau Bell will be joining me and Marisa Lagos on stage in November for a live event about mixed race experiences at KQED in San Francisco. The California Report Magazine is a production of KQED. Thanks to everybody who helped us with this series. MJ Johnson, Izzy Bloom, Amanda Font, Victoria Mauleon, and Jessica Carissa. Our interim senior editor is Katrina Schwartz. Our sound engineer is Brendan Willard. Our producer director is Susie Racho. And Olivia Zhao is our intern. I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks so much for listening. This is the California Report Magazine. Your state, your stories. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.